When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We're talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Saturday, December 19th and great, great guest today. I'm so psyched. Uh, We were able to get Scott Galloway back on the pod. He has written a new book. It is called Post Corona from crisis to opportunity. And in this first part of our interview, we're going to talk about where there is some really interesting trends at work because of Corona, good and bad. Here is the first part of our interview with Scott Galloway. So Scott, you've got a new book. Congratulations. It's called Post Corona from Crisis to Opportunity. And I think it's such a great time for you to be on the program with us because we last checked in with you in the springtime. And I want to thank you so much because that was the interview that really helped me frame a lot of the stuff that I was doing on CBS News. I always cited you and said, COVID is an accelerant. And I want you to now reflect since we spoke, which I believe was in April, how you think that thesis of yours has played out many months later. Uh, Simply put, I think I was right. I was trying to think of a a less pretentious way of saying that. So if you look at e-commerce, in eight weeks, loosely speaking, e-commerce grew 1% a year, meaning each year another percentage of total retail was transacted through digital channels. And sitting here at the beginning of the pandemic when we first spoke, e-commerce was 18% of all retail. And within eight weeks, it was 28%. So we literally had a decade of acceleration in e-commerce in just eight weeks. And we've seen this across online grocery Uh, We've also seen really unfortunate trends accelerate, whether it's income inequality or the fact that we now have more young adults between the ages of 18 and 30 living at home than living on their own. So both good and bad, best of times, worst of times, but everything's been accelerated. If you go back in time and to the point where you were writing this book, what was something you thought was happening in the springtime that didn't pan out? That's a really interesting quote. I think we thought that the markets would go down. I think we thought that, okay, it's a pandemic that probably will register. In most crises, we or you know, economic or a terrorist attack, we see the markets take a hit. Uh, this did take a very short-term, very violent hit, but the markets, no one have, would have guessed that the worst crisis in American history as it relates to the velocity of death we're registering would result in markets hitting all-time highs and real estate uh, values hitting all-time highs. I wouldn't have expected that. And of course, you write about this, but the thing that became so clear was that this was a virus of haves and have-nots. Talk a little bit about the inequality and the gap that's blown out since that springtime period. Well, I think there's a very cynical uh, view, and and I hold this view, but it doesn't mean we're wrong, that this pandemic has provided cloud cover for our elected representatives who are are influenced by what I'll call the shareholder class to take the top 10% and shove them into the 1%. You have assets at all-time highs, as we referenced, the NASDAQ and real estate prices are in all-time highs, but 80% of those assets 
by dollar volume are owned by the top 10%, some would argue owned by the top 1%. So the kind of the thing that's uncomfortable to say out loud is that if you're in the top 10%, you're living your best life. If you've been blessed with good health, uh, you are spending more time with your children, spending more time with Netflix, and you've never been wealthier. And you're spending less time commuting. If you're in the other 90%, you have found that things have gotten harder. So this has been, you make over $100,000 a year, no change in employment. 60% of those people can work from home. You make less than $40,000 a year. 40% have had job interruption and less than 10% can work from home. So we've gone from a dysfunctional economy to a dystopian one. Mm. And it's really startling because, you know, I can look at headlines. Uh, this is from USA Today. The top 1% saw their wages soar by 160% since 1979, six times the increase of the bottom 90% of workers. What does that mean for this economy? How do we progress if we only have the tippy top advancing? Well, I don't think we we do, and you use the right word. We, we've we've registered incredible prosperity, but very little progress. All the value creation in World War II to 2000 has been added to billionaires' wealth, and at the same time, one in five households with children are food insecure. A third of renters are worried about being evicted. I think the biggest threat is to what has been the greatest source of prosperity in history, and that is capitalism. And capitalism is not an organic, natural state. If it doesn't rest on a pool of empathy, in some capitalism is you allow full body contact, violence, Darwinism at a corporate level. You'd a, you let Apple put companies out of business. You let Apple almost go out of business. And that prosperity from that Darwinism, that competition, that, that corporate violence creates such incredible prosperity that we can fund Social Security and take senior poverty from 38% to 11%. We can fund Head Start. Where we appear to have gotten it wrong, in my view, where we've really lost the script is we've flipped it. And that is we've decided to be generous and loving with corporations and really harsh and Darwinian with individuals. I think our biggest mistake and our biggest failure as a nation is we have decided we have decided to protect companies, not people. This is what you call sort of this idea about empathetic capitalism. And my nephew, who is a huge fan of yours, he writes this question, which comes right on the back of this. He says, Scott, I've heard you say a lot recently about empathetic capitalism. Go back to a system of America where capitalism rests on a pool of empathy. And he wants to know, when was that period? In other words, did it really exist? What were the traits he says, we had a capitalist boom following World War II, lasted five decades, but it seems to me it was a boom for white men. Empathy wasn't exactly afforded to women and people of color. So he wants to know, what's the period that you're re referencing and how do we make it happen today? Sure. So systemically and more broadly speaking, uh, when we had leaders who didn't see red or blue, they saw red, white, and blue, and that is they had all served in the agency of others, usually in uniform. We passed incredible social services legislation. We passed civil rights legislation. We got it wrong on women and people of color, but every day we got it less wrong. And I think it was through prosperity, and we funded incredible, you know, the great society through this prosperity, through capitalism. On a personal level, the University of California in the 80s and the 90s showed incredible grace and generosity 
to the son of a single immigrant parent who lived and died a secretary. And I was able to get undergraduate and graduate degrees from UCLA and Berkeley for a total tuition of $7,000. So that is capitalism. That is saying, okay, we're going to let companies go at it in California and we're going to use some of that prosperity for progress. We're going to invest in the future. We're not going to borrow money from future generations in the form of debt to cut taxes on the wealthy and then fund the incredible stimulus. I mean, effectively, think about what we're doing here, Jill. That is, we've decided that losing people at three times the rate that we lost in World War II is bad. But what would be profoundly tragic is if the NASDAQ went down. And so we are borrowing trillions of dollars from future generations such that we don't have to increase taxes on anybody and still flatten the curve for rich people. I think we had much greater examples of capitalism in the 70s and 80s. Airlines have spent 94% of their free cash flow on stock buybacks to juice the compensation of airline CEOs who made $150 million in the last five years. And then on the way down, they want socialism. They want bailouts. So I, I do think we have embraced a new form of capitalism, and I would call it cronyism. We need to move back to more empathy, funding our institutions, and recognizing that there, by the grace of God, go I. One of the biggest negative impacts of this dispersion is that we aren't interacting. We're segregating. And studies show that when you don't integrate with people from different economic classes, different ethnicities, you have less empathy for them. And because we're not commuting, because we're not going to the office, because we're not going to the mall or even the grocery store, we don't see the homeless vet on the freeway off-ramp panhandling. We don't see the single mother bringing us food. We don't see kids from different economic classes. I mean, the question is, are we still a nation? Do we still have empathy? Do we still want to grab hands with our brothers and sisters and realize we need to redistribute income that the greatest source of prosperity in history, the U.S. government, shouldn't be despaired. Our agencies should be funded, and we should lift people up and give them the opportunity to participate in the incredible prosperity that's been recognized over the last 30 years. And you've been pretty much at the forefront of folks who talk about how so many people who are wealthy seem to conflate the result, their wealth, with their talent. And you say it actually has a lot to do with luck. Can you talk a little bit about that? The other virus and probably more dangerous virus long term in America is the shareholder class conflating luck with talent. And I was guilty of it. Your your nephew talked about how basically our society was kind of the patriarchy. I raised several hundred million dollars through the course of my career for my startups. And 99% went to my demographic, specifically white males. And it seemed natural at the time. There has been, and I thought, you know, I think well into my 40s, it, it was a function of my genius, not recognizing that being born a white heterosexual male in 1964 was hitting the lottery. It meant I could get free education from great universities in the 80s. It meant I could come a professional age in the 90s where you could raise a ton of money for startups and build unprecedented economic value through a decline in processing power. I mean, I want to talk about luck. My freshman roommate was very similar to me. I think we were both talented, both UCLA degrees. God reached into his soul and decided that he was homosexual. At the age of 34, I was raising tens of millions of dollars for e-commerce startups in San Francisco and being invited to Davos. At the age of 34, he died alone of AIDS. So I think a lot of this, much of our success, and I think this is especially true of young men, we need to recognize that it wasn't our fault. And the way we recognize it isn't our fault is to ensure that many of the people in the new generations have the same opportunities we do. And I find, especially across what we call the innovation economy, venture capitalists, startup entrepreneurs, 
uh, mistake or conflate luck for talent. And I think it's a virus that infects America. Uh, You write in your book, Post-Corona, From Crisis to Opportunity, that there is something called the Great Dispersion. Can you explain what is the Great Dispersion and in what areas are we seeing the Great Dispersion? What sectors of the economy? The biggest trend is acceleration, but the biggest opportunity or paradigm shift for stakeholder creation is this massive dispersion away from traditional channels of distribution of huge industries. So for example, healthcare, 17% of our economy, a $3 trillion industry, 99% of the people who have contracted, endured, and established antibodies to the novel coronavirus will have never entered a doctor's office, much less a hospital. So while there's still a trillion dollars of procedures and surgery that need to take place in hospitals, diagnostics, diagnosis, treatments, two trillion of that can probably move to or be dispersed away from the traditional channels, hospitals and doctor's offices to smartphones, smart speakers in your home. I think it's likely that you'll begin testing. I think Amazon will get into the business of diagnosis, primary health care, and even more aggressive health care in your home. So we're going to see the dispersal of trillions of dollars, maybe 25% of our economy, whether it was Amazon dispersing retail to our desktops and our mobile phones and from shelves to warehouses to our front door, you're going to see a dispersal of healthcare. Education is going to disperse from campuses to our phones and our computers. We're going to see a dispersal of media, movie theaters to our flat screen TVs. This dispersion, if you will, creates more economic opportunity than any trends in the last 50 years, other than maybe globalization and the digitization. There's an enormous opportunity here. It's amazing, isn't it? It's just sort of mind-blowing, actually. Let's move to the idea that really just absolutely captivated me when we spoke back in the spring, and that is the future of higher education. Now, I think this is really fascinating because we have this crazy experiment, talk about an accelerant of online learning and, you know, some successful, not so successful on other parts. I'm wondering what is the Galloway thesis on higher ed and where it goes post pandemic? Well, I think higher education is slowly morphed from the greatest upward lubricant of the middle class in America to a caste system, where kids from the top 1% income earning households are 77 times more likely to get into an elite university than the other 99%. And 34 of the 100 highest ranked universities in the US have more students from the top 1% than the bottom 60%. So I think we've literally lost the script and decided, and I'm guilty of this, that we're no longer public servants serving in the agency of others that were luxury brands and that the deans of school stand up and brag that we rejected 90% of our applicants, which in my view is tantamount to uh, the head of a homeless shelter bragging they turned away nine and 10 people. Technology and COVID-19 are the fists of stone coming for an industry that's raised its prices faster than healthcare without any underlying increase in innovation. Last night was the last session of my 12-session brand strategy course. I charged the kids $7,000 to take this course. Granted, my agent takes a 98% commission, but that's $1.96 million for 12 nights. That's $166,000 per night that is levied on young people in the form of debt. It results in them getting married later, forming households later, that makes them more risk averse to start businesses. It's morally corrupt and it's bad for our economy and bad for our society. I think we've lost the script in higher education. And I think that technology offers an incredible opportunity. If we just take 50% of our courses online, 
it doubles the capacity. And we can take UCLA back from where it is now, 12% admissions rate, to 60% admissions such that unremarkables can get in. It seems like higher education has decided that their collective goal is to take the top 1% and to turn them into billionaires. And that's not the role of higher ed. The role of higher ed is to give the other 99% a shot at being in the top 1%. We've lost the script. Hopefully technology and COVID-19 are the fists of stone coming for the mother of all chins that have been stuck out. And that's the arrogance and self-aggrandizement of university leadership that thinks we're luxury brands, not public servants. I'm wondering how you see the nearly $1.6 trillion of student debt. It's in the news and a lot of people say, oh, let's just get rid of it. How does this idea of outstanding student debt, potential student loan forgiveness, how does this weave its way into the next phase of how we treat higher education? Should we get rid of this debt or not? I, I, this might surprise you. I don't. I don't think we should. I, I think that the that effectively through this kind of luxury position in this gestalt in America, where everybody needs to get a college education or you failed as a parent, has resulted in a transfer of wealth from 1.6 trillion dollars from mostly middle class households to universities. And I think we have to try and figure out a way that that doesn't continue happening. But I don't think a bailout of student debt is the right course. I don't know what you say to the individual who sacrificed, that didn't buy a house, that didn't go on a cruise with their parents because they wanted to pay off their student loans, who just paid them off. I don't know what you say to that person. I think there needs to be relief. If you take jobs in economically strained areas, if you do social service, I think we should figure out a way to use our balance sheet to reduce the interest costs. But typically, every major bailout in our nation, whether it's the bailout of long-term credit management or Chrysler, has just led to more moral hazard and bigger bailouts. I think the universities need to come under the financial pressure of not having cheap capital. I think people need to be responsible for their decisions. And I know that sounds harsh. I, I believe there should be some sort of debt relief, some sort of debt forgiveness. But wiping out $1.6 trillion in debt, it's just going to lead to an increase in costs. It's an increase in moral hazard and bad behavior because people are thinking in the back of their mind, well, maybe at some point I'll just get bailed out. So I'm actually not in favor of debt forgiveness around student debt. Okay, that was part one. We have a whole nother podcast tomorrow with Scott Galloway. So entertaining. I just love listening to him. He's so compelling to me. If you have a financial question, feel free to send us a note. Ask Jill at jillonmoney.com. Don't forget to let us know if you'd like to be on the air with us. Mark can arrange it. He has the power. Don't forget to wash your hands, to wear your masks, to maintain your physical distancing. And please put your hands metaphorically on someone's back. Talk to you tomorrow.